Today is the third day of our winter seven-day session. It's the 18th of July, 2022. And we'll continue and finish off um, our exploration of Dukkha uh, with Darlene Cohen and her book, Turning Suffering Inside Out as an Approach to Living with Physical and Emotional Pain. Uh, we left off when she was telling her story of uh, mistaking a, a state of concentration for enlightenment and then realizing that there was, was still very much a sense of self there. She describes this as being like in the realm of the gods and it may be helpful to understand um, where she might be taking this from, from Buddhist cosmology, in which there are six different world realms, and the, the highest being the Deva realm, or the realm of the gods. Um, a little bit of a description here of, of this realm. Uh, a, a realm where everything happens easily, naturally, automatically. Nothing is irritating or undesirable. It's said that devas are gifted with great beauty, longevity, and freedom from pain. But because of their one-sided dedication to pleasure, they forget the true nature of life, the limitation of their existence, and the suffering of other beings. They do not know that they ha live only in a state of temporary harmony, which comes to an end as soon as the causes which led them to this happy state are exhausted. So still, it's a um, conditioned realm, you could say. Another vivid element of this um, image of the deva realm is that the devas, the god-like beings, all wear garlands of beautiful flowers around their necks. But then when their time is up, so to speak, they're, when they're about to leave this uh, wonderful realm, the, the garlands start to fade and to rot. And this is, of course, very painful for the devas because suddenly they're going to be, have to be separated from this wonderful existence plunge into one of the other realms where there's pain and struggle. This is the, the, the aspect of um, pleasurable states that we, we tend to ignore, the, the, the pain that we experience when they end. Um, a memory came to me when I was preparing the talk of um, sitting in the back of my parents' car, probably I was about seven or eight, um, maybe nine, leaving uh, Matapodi Beach in Northland, which where we went every year uh, for two weeks. And I was um, bitterly crying because we were leaving. And, and vehemently um, wishing that we could spend more time, longer than our, our allotted two weeks there. It seemed so unfair. My friend who, who was also there and was 
was able to stay there all summer. Why, why couldn't we spend our time swimming and pottering in rock pools and soaking up the sun? Koan continues with um, her uh, exploration of some of the misconceptions people have about about spiritual practice and states of of bliss that we might experience. She says, some people who explore New Age religions based on classical Eastern or Native American teachings interpret those teachings to mean that they're supposed to be happy and generous, upbeat and blissful all the time. I used to meet people like that at Green Gulch Farm when I was working in the office on Sunday, which was Visitor's Day. Relentlessly sunny and cheerful, they spoke of the spiritual path with great enthusiasm and were often generous enough to suppose that we at Green Gulch Farm were also sunny and cheerful as a result of our obviously arduous meditation practice. Outsiders sometimes find it difficult to relate to such devotees because they are nearly impervious in their efforts to practice what they believe to be the teachings of their serene masters, they seem to bury any feelings of hesitation or gloom, and so are inaccessible to those with ordinary consciousness. I'm embarrassed to admit that after talking to people like that I've, for a while, I always want to kill something. I think I'm, I compulsively carry the shadow for people who choose not to do so. Um, it's refreshing... Um, Cohen's uh, honesty here of her reaction to uh, these sunny individuals and this shadow um, term is, a, is appropriate here um, in, in uh, Jungian psychology the shadow is what we cast through our clinging to a particular ego identity it's all that we have to disregard about ourselves in order to maintain our sense of self. Perhaps we, we think of ourselves as a good person or a spiritual person or a generous person and so on. And those parts of us, of us that don't match up to this concept of ourselves has to be uh, relegated to, to the shadows so it's a, it's a very uh, rich and living kind of image because it, it is actually um, uh, our, our ego identity that, is, that is, is casting this, this darkness over aspects of ourselves. She continues... Another stance commonly taken by students of the meditative arts is the impersonation of equanimity. Because Eastern religions emphasize the impermanence of all existence, practitioners of one of these systems might have the ideal of equanimity. 
if they've been practicing meditation for a while, they think they should be calm and serene all the time, or at least appear to be, as if the impermanence of every single thing and being and thought in the universe, even the universe itself, were a situation they personally could live with. New students of meditation are very quiet, slow and deliberate, seemingly imperturbable. They commonly f- they are, they are <laughs> they are commonly found at the cash registers of health food stores, especially when you're in a hurry. They manage to seem deliberate, careful and oblivious all at once. This serenity lasts until some unfortunate event happens. Everybody else in the retreat center eats all the dessert before they're able to get to the table, say, and then their equanimity is disturbed. So those who prefer a state of mind or think religious practice itself is a particular state of mind can, very, can find it very unsettling to lose their composure over petty things. And I think when we're a beginner, we can have these misconceptions and then we can... Um, really judge ourselves harshly when we, when we um, have angry thoughts or other kinds of um, thoughts that we think we shouldn't have. Traditionally, though, in Zen teaching, hanging out in a blissful state of concentration or even in what is popularly considered as the Zen cornerstone state of mind, equanimity, is regarded with suspicion. It's not lively enough. In the Blue Cliff Record, Shui Do says in his verse, placidly walking along, he treads down the sound of the flowing stream. He has gone into the nest of entangling vines, the grasses grow thick, implying that his equanimity has become a stance, a pit, thus trapped. This practitioner cannot experience the present moment. And it's important to to emphasize that it's not that these states of oneness are to be avoided, but just that they are not to be clung to or turned into an aspect of our uh, identity, a badge of a, a, a achievement or um, attainment. At the end of the same verse, Shuedo says, though you be clean and naked, bare and pur- purified, totally without fault or worry, this is still not the ultimate. In the end, though, what is? Look carefully at this quote. I snap my fingers. How lamentable is shunyata. So, though you be clean and naked, bare and purified, totally without fault or worry. This is kind of a a peak experience. Um, the, The top of the mountain, so to speak. But that's not where we live. We eventually, we, we have to come down the mountain. Um, one Zen teacher put it, 
there are, there are no restaurants or, or toilets on the top of mountains. We go, we go there for the view, you could say, but then then we come we have to come back down. Apparently, Shredo um, uh, says, I snap my fingers. How lamentable is shunyata? Um, for shunyata is, is, means uh, emptiness. So the, the, the most exalted state in Zen, emptiness. But here he's saying, how lamentable is shunyata? This is, this is um, an example of of Zen iconoclasm in action. Even our most sacred truths, our, our highest values get, get ridiculed by the masters. They're not letting us um, rest in anything. Every, every kind of rug is pulled out from under us. And the snapping the fingers, according to um, the, the notes in, in the Blue Cliff Record, um, Thomas Cleary's notes, is, is done in order to ward off demons, impurities. She continues... Preferring the state of mind of equanimity is referred to in Chinese Zen as intoxication, considered one-sided, incomplete, and narrow-minded. Hence, it is taboo. So in the Zen literature, equanimity as a stance, a habitual and preferred state of mind, is considered a pitfall of meditation practice, not an achievement. It can be, it can be a... Uh, a refuge in the sense of a place where we can avoid the messiness and chaos of uh, the world, the, the everyday struggles of existence. continues, but this idea of the permanent attainment of, of bliss consciousness as the object of meditation practice is very strong in our general culture. Sometimes when I'm teaching meditation in hospitals or businesses as a way of coping with pain and stress, I refer to bliss as a distraction from concentration, similar to thinking about what you're going to do after the meditation class, and people are quite startled. They think that a, the state of mind called bliss is the whole point of doing meditation. What do I mean it's a distraction? For their first session, I led a class of managers and lawyers in a guided meditation through the body, 20 minutes of following my steady, soothing voice, instructing them to breathe into each body part and then breathe out. 
When I asked for comments and questions afterward, everyone was delighted and had remarks such as, oh, so relaxing or very refreshing. When I began to instruct them in a slightly more demanding meditation, counting each breath from one to ten without my guidance, it was a different story. Usually when people do this for the first time, they notice with some amazement how active and distractible their minds are. When I asked for comments following the second meditation, one person immediately said that after the first few minutes he had gone back to the previous meditation instead. I was surprised when several others agreed. The first one was a great meditation, they said. Why do something difficult after you find something that works? When I argued that the purpose of this class was to prepare them to face stressful, stressful situations with even-mindedness and awareness of choice while they were experiencing great stress, not to give them a bliss break once in a while, still some of them protested that the body meditation was enough for them. They were apparently resigned to getting very stressed out and upset during their workday work day, as long as they could take time out in bliss states. Bliss states instead of coffee breaks. Despite such a beginning to this five-week class, several individuals did manage to become intrigued by the practice in which they learned not to prefer any state of mind, but to live their whole lives to the fullest, welcoming all states of mind. It's probably a symptom of our culture that we would go for uh, a feel-good practice. The, 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 um, the body scanning relaxation, rather than one that, that throws us back on our <coughs> own resources. Now, when we do introductory workshops, I'd say that perhaps more than, more than a quarter of the people who come to workshops have, have already started meditating using an app. Um, they come along to the workshop probably because they sense that um, there's more to it. Um, but then s similarly to this, this story that Cohen tells here, um, th there are people who, who can't quite see the point of having to do something more challenging and, and is for the, exactly the same reason that we, we explain in the workshop that it's, it's, you want to not rely on a recording but be able to um, find your centre of stability in the midst of difficulties. And as, as all of you know who, who um, practice and train, that means regular, persistent work, changing the mind, changing our deeply ingrained habits of mind. A very devoted and, severe and sincere Zen student in another meditation class told me that over the course of several weeks he had at last achieved some calm in his life which he attributed 
to meditation practice. He said, I'm in bliss, meaning that he was in a good mood for an extended period of time, unusual for him. Because I know him as an ambivalent, anxious person who has trouble accepting his anxiety as the normal background for his activity, I was a little concerned when he told me he was in bliss. It seemed to be continuing for an unusually long time, and I didn't know how disappointed he would be when that blissful state of mind passed. Sure enough, a bad incident at work interfered with his bliss preoccupation, and he came out of his trance, making a conscious decision to abandon the trance in order to be present and take care of his social work client. I was not surprised when he told me he was actually relieved to be back. I asked him, where is back? He said, I'm back dealing with my problems, including all the different states of mind that come up. As I had done at Green Gulch Farm so many years ago, he began to appreciate ordinary states of mind that didn't seduce him or lash him to them, but rather allowed him to just let one thought follow another. So from the point of view of living your life in a very rich, full way, open to everything that is going on. The states of equanimity or bliss are not to be preferred any more than emotional upheaval or anger or being depressed or comforting a child. They're just two more states of mind, some of thousands that visit us every minute, as natural to us as the air we breathe. At a meditation retreat in Spokane, a sitter asked me, where do all these thoughts come from? When I said I thought it's just the inherent nature of the mind, a doctor in the group answered, think insulin and pancreas. The, the pancreas secretes insulin. The brain, we could say, secretes thoughts. Actually, there's a, there's a Japanese teacher who, who this is one of his mottos about the, the, the brain secreting thoughts. You can see it even as almost as, as a biological process. That's what a, that's what a brain does. When we question whether our desperate flight from pain and frantic pursuit of pleasure is the way we want to spend the whole of our lives, then we begin to see the ironic and humorous quality of going around the wheel, of being raised up or cast down by life's constant variations, to laugh through the experience of struggle and chuckle at its futility. We go around on the karmic wheel over and over again, it's not so much a matter of getting off the wheel as of noticing our patterns. Or we could say of moving, moving more towards the center of the wheel, to the axle, seeing things from that point of view. Of course, the, at the very center of the axle is, is a point that doesn't go up and down. Or as uh, uh, T.S. Eliot put it, the still point of the turning world.
Very few of us discover that there might be an alternative to going through life this way, that there might be a radically liberating alternative predicated on both turning toward pain and intimately investigating pleasure. Turning toward pain and intimately investigating pleasure. This is um, how we can work with our dukkha, our, our reactionary way of regarding pain and pleasure, rejecting the, the former and um, grasping onto the latter. That's, that's all from Dalian Cohen. Before we, we go to a, a different text, though, just to finish up on this topic, um, sometimes a, a, uh, a distinction is made between three different kinds of dukkha. Um, dukkha, dukkata, Viparinama dukkha, sorry, viparimana dukkata, and sankara dukkata. So, dukkha dukkata, viparinama dukkata, and sankara dukkata. The first one, um, dukkha dukkata, is sometimes translated as the suffering of suffering. And it refers to um, the, the what Cohen calls um, mundane suffering, ob obvious kinds of suffering, all physical and mental and emotional pain or discomfort, being separated from those we love, being stuck around those we dislike, sickness, old age and death, all of these. Viparinama dukkata is uh, the suffering of impermanence. Knowing that, that, lush, that nothing lasts. Even, even um, when we're not actually suffering directly, we human beings, self-aware, um, know that we will die. We may try and suppress that thought as much as possible but it, it, it has a, an effect on us in many, many ways. Many avoidance strategies we use to not fully face this truth. Then there's a th a th this third one, Sankara Dukkata, which is even more subtle. Sankara refers to the, um, the, the five skandhas. These, these five skandhas are, are a way of talking about the physical body 
and the mind, body and mind. That's, that's probably the simplest way to talk about the, the skandhas. Um, skanda means heap or aggregate. Um, and the, the five are form, feeling, perception, mental formation, and consciousness. Forms r refers to the all f the, um, the physical world, our physical body, its senses, and um, external material objects as well. So the things, the, the senses, sense, so to speak. The other four, um, and, and they do overlap, are these feeling or feeling tones, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. This is discriminating or ego consciousness. So it's a way of talking about different aspects of cho or chopping up the, the mind, the mental sphere. And all of these are seen to be um, empty. You can't, um, you can't pin them down. They're changing all the time. Another uh, way they're, they're referred to, the, the skandhas, which is, I think, very, very vivid and helpful, is the perishing collection. The perishing collection. They're, they're, they have a form to them, yes, but they're unstable, shifting like, like sand dunes changing shape in a wind. Somebody wrote, the constant interplay and interconnections among the skandhas has the effect of giving a false sense of personal identity and continuity. Whereas, in truth, there is no definite I existing by itself, independent of the ever-shifting relation among psychic and physical forces. So we, we base our sense of self on this perishing collection. And it's inherently unstable. It's inherently lacking in a sense of security or, or solidity. And again, it may only be at a sort of an intuitive level that we, we know this. We may deny it, but it still affects us. It affects our, our way of being in the world. There is, there is a, one consolation in this, is this, um, this, this bleak, uh, view of of the impermanent nature of things and the the lack of any kind of uh, abiding and solid self, and that is the just appreciating the other side of the fact that everything is is dying, moment by moment, changing moment by moment, and that of course is that everything is also being reborn, moment by moment. There would be no life without impermanence and without death. This is, this is what we miss appreciating if we don't accept the impermanence, the changing nature of everything. Uh, Dogen Zenji, uh, uh, the, the, the founder of our um, Japanese Zen tradition, 
Soto tradition. He taught that reality is created and destroyed. Um, let me see, how can I, I've got to read this here. Um, 6,499,980 times a day, or around 70,000 times a second. The, the interesting thing about this teaching is that now it's, it's um, something similar has been discovered in, in, in modern science. The Higgs boson, which is sometimes called the, the God particle, um, not a very <coughs> apt name, but anyway, this, this, this particle that it was for so long sought was theoretically said to exist and then was through experimentation was finally discovered and the, the world did not collapse when that happened. But it, it is considered to be um, a building block of the universe and it lasts only a millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a second. Somebody writes, writes taking tiny, ferociously fast loops into and out of existence so that the universe is continuously being reborn. This is a forgotten aspect of the nature of impermanence. Everything changes, everything passes, yes, but this also means that life is in a near constant state of refreshing itself, and in so doing, suggesting that we can do the same. Yes, we are offered beginning after beginning, the moment at hand forever, a truly clean slate to do with as we please. So in each moment we have this, this chance to start over again, to renew our efforts. So we can, we can when we're struggling, we can, we can take refuge in impermanence. When we're somewhere comfortable, we can be reminded of impermanence and, and, and sharpen up. And just finish finish um, this um, exploration of dukkha with and impermanence with um, a passage from um, great Chinese master, the late Master Sheng Yin. He says, becoming enlightened is neither simple nor difficult, but in order to personally experience it, we must have the correct view of impermanence. Each moment is transient and cannot be held on to. 
If you cannot use this fleeting moment to practice, then you are wasting your time. If you can use it to practice, then each moment becomes precious. Cherish each moment to understand the fleeting nature of your own thoughts. Experience two kinds of impermanence of your mind. The impermanence of the thoughts that endlessly pass through it, and the impermanence of the mind itself. You must experience this for yourself. Having a correct view of impermanence is the safest and most beneficial way to practice Buddha Dharma. Human life is characterized by impermanence. Of course, all of life is characterized by impermanence. Even if you live to 120, life is still fleeting. The number of breaths you take in a lifetime may be millions, but it is still finite. If you fully understand impermanence, then you should make use of every breath you take. Then, with every inhalation and exhalation, you would be freeing this human form. This is a sure way to cross the sea of suffering to the other shore of liberation. That does not mean you should be hasty and anxious in engaging with the practice. I think, I think here of that image we used yesterday of the old man sitting in the sun watching children play. To come with a, with a, uh, a settled mind, with, with interest but without agitation. This does not mean you should be hasty and anxious in engaging the practice. This is like rushing to get the ferry early, but forgetting your boarding papers. Everyone else boards, and you are left behind. Understand impermanence, but don't be too hasty or too anxious. Just patiently stay with the method from moment to moment. When you do this, you will realize that you are already on the ship. This is the best way to practice. Otherwise, you will keep losing the practice, like getting on the boat safely and then throwing yourself overboard. Get on and patiently stay on until you reach the other shore. So, beginning now, fully experience impermanence. Thought after thought, be completely with your practice. Put heart and mind into the method. Offer this precious life to the Buddha Dharma. Practice like this and your effort will not be in vain. Knowing you have this treasure, it would be a pity to waste it day after day, moment after moment. This precious gold is originally yours, so spend it on the practice. If you do this, you will be on your way to freeing your human form. Well, our time is nearly up, so we will we'll save our, our new text for tomorrow. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions I 